Welcome to our series in Advent. We're in week two. Today our theme is love. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Mark. We're going we're gonna to be in two books today. We're going to be in Isaiah as we uh, recited some of the verses that we're going to study together today in Isaiah chapter 42. But um, one of the first passages I'll mention will be in the, the, the gospel of Mark. And so go ahead and turn there. I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the gathering of your church. We thank you for Transit Church. We thank you for this Christmas season where just all the, the fun and uh, uh, just the, the traditions of Christmas that uh, light up uh, our city, that light up our hearts and our lives. Uh, we think of, of kids and the anticipation that they have of opening presents and the gifts that they get and playing with new toys and stuff. And, and even today, as we think about that and kids and their perspective on Christmas, would you give us that, um, that excitement as we get into your scriptures and, and, and then talk about the reason for, for Christmas, the, the giver himself, the, the gift of Jesus? Lord, we pray that we would uh, see you in the Old Testament scriptures today, the, the, the person and the work of Jesus. And we pray that it would give us anticipation for what he, uh, what he came to do, what he's doing in our hearts right now, and what he will do even in the days ahead. We pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. I love Christmas. Christmas is like my favorite time of year. I love everything about it. I like the lights. I like, um, I don't like the shopping so much. I don't necessarily do that. But I mean, I like the, the, the crowd. I like looking at the crowds in the malls. I love that Kingstown is lighting up about this time and, and probably the neighborhood where you live is happening the same way. I love uh, the, you know, the, the cutting down or putting up your fake Christmas tree, however you do it, putting lights on it. I mean, all that stuff. And, you know, it's Christmas season when, you know, as, as I always say, you, you go to Starbucks and they got those red cups and you get some of that liquid goodness. Y'all know what liquid goodness is? It's, it's eggnog latte. You probably thought I was going to say like black coffee or whatever that nasty mess you get. Eggnog latte is the, is the liquid goodness from Starbucks. I actually went on post Fort Belvoir last week and they did not have the liquid goodness. And I was like, I'm never coming here again. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. You know, our family has many traditions. I won't go through all of them. But one of our traditions is that during the month, scattered throughout, we take time to go through the scriptures um, to, to see what God has said about, about Christmas itself, about the birth of Jesus. One of the things I like to do personally is, is spend time combing through the gospel accounts of, of Jesus' birth. And Matthew you know, in Matthew's gospel, he gives us this, this great genealogy. We see how Jesus is connected to the dynasty of David and how David, Jesus through David, is connected to this great patriarch, Abraham, and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. And we go over to the right to the book of Luke, and um, we see some neat things in the, in the book of Luke. We see uh, shepherds. Think about this. God the, the God of the universe incarnated himself as a, as a baby, grew up as a man. But the first people that he showed himself to were lowly shepherds. I mean, they were the scum of the earth. I mean, that's, that's something to ponder. God himself would show himself firstly on earth to shepherds. And then we get this grandiose picture of, of angels and this angelic choir that shows up out of nowhere. And they're singing, glory to God in the high. I'd sing it for you if, if my wife would let me, but... I mean, glory to God in the highest, 
peace on earth and goodwill toward men. So you got Matthew with the genealogy. I skipped, you know, there's some other stuff in there. I mean, obviously we see the, the humble the humbleness of, of Joseph and Mary. We see a little bit of the, the wise men. Um, and then we got Luke. But, you know, sandwiched in between those is actually another gospel. It's the gospel of Mark. Have you ever noticed Mark doesn't say anything about Christmas? He doesn't talk about Jesus' birth at all. I mean, he, he seemingly skips over that. And um, we should wonder why he, he does that. In fact, the very first words, not the very first words that he says about Jesus, but one of the first things he says about Jesus is, is found in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is what he says. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, and you, I am well pleased. I don't know if you noticed this. I mean, we could start in in, in verse 1 and and go all the way through, but you're not going to find any details about Jesus' birth, really about Christmas as we know it from a spiritual sense. And, you know, I I got a funny mind. But if you think about it this way, I mean, if we were just going on Mark's gospel to figure out what we're supposed to do and think and know about Christmas, I mean, we'd be completely lost. We wouldn't know anything. We'd have no idea of what happened. There's no Mary. There's no Joseph. There's no angels. There's no wise men. We wouldn't even know how to decorate our houses. We wouldn't know where to put, when to put the Christmas tree up. We wouldn't know when to put the lights on there. If we had to just go on Mark's gospel, we'd probably start doing some weird things for Christmas. Like we'd probably make up these animated Christmas stories about a, a angry, mean, cartoonish guy called the Grinch. We'd probably make up movies about some kid who gets left home all alone. And then for some crazy reason, his family leaves him home all alone again the next year. Our family watched that yesterday, by the way. And I think there's like two or three more iterations of that guy getting left home. I mean, I mean how many times do you got to get left home alone at Christmas? And if we were only to go on Mark's gospel to figure out what was going on in Christmas, probably the only songs we would come up with are songs like, I mean, Frost, I mean, Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. I've always been mesmerized about this one, though. I saw Mommy kissing Santa Claus. You know, as a kid, I was like, yuck. But the older I get, I'm, I think that's like a wonderful song, isn't it? We'd end up paying a lot of money to either go cut down a tree or have someone cut down for us. And then we'd drag that pine tree into our house. We'd move all our furniture out of the way. We'd stick it up, put lights on it, and then we'd just watch those pine needles fall on the ground and have to vacuum it up. Think about that. If we only had Mark's gospel to go on to tell us about Christmas, then we would be lost and we probably would end up doing some strange things. And that really is why I like Advent. You know what Advent does for us? It, it, we, don't, we don't throw out the traditions of Christmas, but it helps us to get at some of the meaningful things, really the essential things about Christmas, what we really should be celebrating. But we should be curious as to why Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel talks about Jesus, his birth and what we know of as Christmas and why Mark leaves it out. 
And if you search what the scholars have said and what the commentarians have said, of course, there's a theology of that Mark is trying to present. There's a reason why Mark doesn't talk about Christmas. But I think in, just in my layman's terms, what Mark is doing is he's getting to the I mean, he's getting to it. Mark uses that word immediately, like hundreds of times, because he wants to tell us in a hurried kind of way what what's the most important thing. He, he's getting to the main thing. The main thing that's the main thing is, is what we read in verse uh Verse 11, he says this, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Mark is trying to tell us the single most important thing about Jesus, which happens to be the exact thing that God tells us about Jesus. He's telling us about his son in whom he loves and whom he is well pleased. It would be impossible for us to overstate the importance of Mark chapter 1, verse 11. This is a significant verse for us in this moment. This pronouncement identifies Jesus as the one that the prophets had foretold that would come and would be the Savior, the the Messiah. He would be the one that would come and save the whole earth from all of their plight. And so when God spoke these words, he wasn't saying them for Jesus' sake. Jesus obviously heard them. But Jesus, at this point in his life, knew who he was. He knew why he had been sent from eternity into into earth to be incarnated as a as a baby and and grown up as a man. And so when God spoke those words, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He's speaking it for all those that were gathered at the Jordan River. He's speaking it to all those that would hear those very words and And this is the deal. They would have known the Old Testament scriptures. They would have known the prophecies of Isaiah and they would have heard in this and immediately would have said, this is it. This is him. This is the one that's to come. Jesus, uh, excuse me, God said these words. This is my son in whom I will please so that someone gathered there would would take those words and would orally transmit them to all those that were there and those that weren't. He would take those words and someone like Mark would write them down so that we could we could hear them. We could hear them today. And so God's description of Jesus and the gospel of Mark would have recalled in their minds the same things that we read during our our Advent liturgy this morning in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Let's look at that verse. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold. Do you see the my chosen one? Do you see the similarity? This is my son in whom, my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. God's pronouncement at Jesus' baptism is nothing other than a restating of this prophecy that Isaiah said hundreds of years earlier, at least 700 or more so years earlier. And we can learn a lot about Jesus and and Advent by looking at what Isaiah says about this beloved one that God had sent and what he was, what he had come to do. Our Advent theme today is love. And uh, what I hope to convey to you in our short time together is that between these verses, Isaiah 42, primarily chapters, uh, uh, chapters 42, verses 1 through 9, and this verse in the, the Gospel of Mark, verse 11, that in between these two is the truth that Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's love for us. But in order for us to do that, we got to understand a little bit of history. And so I want to give you some Old Testament history as Isaiah lays it out uh, 
in the life of Israel. And it would take us a long time to come through the scriptures. Isaiah is 66 chapters long. So I hope to do that just by, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay? It's a true story. It may sound familiar. It may even be a little bit funny. It goes like this. A boy meets a girl. She thinks he's strong, he's sexy, he's cute, he's smart. I mean, he's a, he's a total package. He comes from a good family. He's a hard worker. He's respectful and polite. When they were in school, he carried her books. Y'all remember that? Boys carrying girls' books. He opens the car door for her. Whenever they, were, whenever they would talk, he would listen to what she says. I mean, he treats her like a queen. He buys her flowers. He gets her jewelry. He's really a sweet guy. At least she thinks he is. He even goes over and mows her mom's grass. I mean, who's ever heard of that? He watches chick flicks with her, and he even cries at the, the sad parts. One time... He even went mall shopping with her instead of going out with the dudes uh, to the monster truck, monster truck show at the Verizon Center. If that isn't sacrifice, I don't know what it is. Pretty soon, it's obvious that he really loves her. They become more committed to each other, and she begins to have dreams of marriage and what life would be like as husband and wife when they never have to be apart. But then she marries him. And that first life is wonderful, just like she thought it would be. But ever so slowly, she noticed some changes in him. At first, he stops opening the car door. And all the guys are like, where are you going with this? You need to stop. <laughs> she discovers he actually likes to go out with his buddies rather than go to the mall or watch chick flicks. She learns that after he comes home from a long day of work, he has a tendency to just plop down on the couch and watch TV and do nothing. And on occasion, he'll open his laptop and all he'll do is like read emails. And on other occasions, he'll open his laptop and he'll do work after he comes home. Instead of listening to her and on how her day went, pretty soon it seems like he doesn't even want to cut his own grass, let alone go over to her mom's house and cut her grass anymore. So as time goes on, things appear to get worse, and she begins to look around. First, she looks around at the neighborhood, and she's like looking at all the other wives and how their husbands are treating, treating them, and she's like, wow, my husband's a little different, and they're, they're not quite so different. And so she notices that the wi- other wives have nicer cars. Other wives are still getting flowers and jewelry from their husbands. Other, other husbands even seem to be more devoted and caring and respectful to their wives, almost like her husband was before they got married. And so she begins to think that her fairy tale marriage is, is starting to, to go away. But then something crazy happens. The most absurd thing, her husband starts communicating expectations of her. And these expectations are some of the most outlandish and unreasonable things she's ever heard in her life. She begins to question her husband's values and his character. She begins to question their future together. And at first, she just complains, complains to her girlfriends, complains to her mom. But then she begins to look elsewhere for satisfaction. And as the story goes, what started out as a a nice romance, well, it ends pretty sadly. Now, that's the end of the story, and it probably sounds familiar. It sounds familiar because you've seen it in a soap opera or you've seen it in one of those nighttime TV shows. Um, 
uh, it's just a, another story of a, a good end, a good beginning and a bad, a bad ending. It's the story of a good marriage that ends that that leads toward or ends in divorce. In fact, this could be anybody. Perhaps it's a story that's close to the life that you're living right now. The interesting thing is not completely, but this is the story of Israel in relationship with God. And this is this is if you if we took the time to read through the uh, Isaiah's prophecy and all 66 chapters of his of his book, this would be the history that he lays out of Israel's relationship with God and how that relationship started out great and how it was broken. When God called Israel out of Egypt to be his people, I mean, they had great dreams of what that would be like. They thought that they were entering a relationship where they would gain great power because of the God they were serving, that they would gain great glory because of the God that they were serving, that they would gain great wealth, that they would be the nation of all nations because of God, because of God who was immensely over all of the earth and he was in control and that God was going to comfort them in all kinds of ways. I mean, he was the God of the universe. How could he not lead them well? This God, this Yahweh, as they called him, who called them out, as the Bible says, he called them out to be his bride and he would be, in, in, a, in a sense, their husband. What could possibly go wrong? But what Israel discovered is, and really early on, is that what they expected God to do for them in all of their, all the ways that they wanted and wished for things to happen didn't happen quite exactly the way they wanted it to go. Moreover, like the, like the husband in the tale with the, with the wife, God, God started to communicate expectations to them. Expectations that Israel in many ways thought were unreasonable, outlandish, and just absurd. And so Israel began to question God's ability and his willingness to care and provide for them. They began to question his character. They actually began to question his wisdom. Now, since we're talking about a people, the nation of Israel, and their relation to, to God, I mean, it would be appropriate for us to, to pause and, and think about that. I mean, have we ever, have you ever questioned God's wisdom? Have you ever been reading the Bible and you see some words of Scripture and, I mean, they almost sound like, well, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I want to do that. I don't even know if it's in me to, to want to do what God is asking me to do right here. Maybe you're reading your Bible and you stumble across uh, a verse uh, like expectations of marriage and, and sexual purity. You know, the Bible says some, some very specific things in regards to who we're supposed to be as husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husband as we should do to, to Christ. That the marriage bed should be undefiled. And you look at that and perhaps you uh, are in a rough marriage and things aren't going well. You feel lonely. Perhaps you're divorced. Maybe you're single, wanting to be married and just living a single Pure life has been hard for you. And you read the, the words that God says about marriage and sexual purity, and you say, well, God has no idea what I'm going through. I mean, my life is hard. And, and although those might be nice words for somebody else, I can't do that. I, I'm not going to do that. 
perhaps you're reading through the Bible and you see what God says about financial responsibility, more than that, about generosity and how you're supposed to be a good steward of what God has gifted you, both in your time and your talent and your treasure. And you read the words that God might put in Scripture, give and it shall be given to you, press down, running over. And it's like, you know, those are nice words. But you know what? God is I mean, he ain't putting money in my pocketbook. I got food to put on the table. I got clothes to put on my kids. And I don't know how I can stretch my budget to do all that God is expecting me to do. I can't do that. Or perhaps you're reading words in scripture where God may say to you that you're supposed to. um, Be nice to someone or forgive someone. And then you think, well, I mean, Does God know what that person actually did to me? There's no way in this world that I could forgive them for what they've done to me. I will not do that. I can't do it, even if God directly tells me to do it. I mean, have you ever have you ever exposed yourself to the Bible and just said, you know what? God might be wise and all, but I just can't. I can't do what he's asking me to do. Have you ever questioned God's wisdom? And I would tell you, I I have. I think we all do. And this was Israel's plight. This is what they struggled with. And since God wasn't meeting their expectations and since his expectations seemed unreasonable, they began looking elsewhere for satisfaction. They looked at the nations that were around them and submitted to their kings, thinking that their kings could protect them and thinking that these kings could give them what they wanted. They looked at the nations around them and saw how they worshiped and thinking that they would through the being like other nations, they would worship the other nations' gods. And they would gain the blessings and favor and prosperity that their own God wasn't giving them. They basically did the very same thing that this disillusioned bride did with when her fairy tale courtship ended in marriage and her expectations weren't met, and so she she wanted to get out of it. Two former lovers separated. And so what we see in Israel is, is, is instead of living with God as their sovereign lover, they rejected God for the world around them, and they got treated exactly how the world treats us, how it treats everybody. And as Isaiah, Isaiah foretold in the history of Israel, he predicts, he predicts that they'll be conquered. And when we read Isaiah, the first half of Isaiah, primarily chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah is foretelling. He's telling us all these things are going to happen to the nation of it. He's telling them all these things are going to happen to you if you're unfaithful to me. All these things are going to happen to you if you're disobedient to my word. I'm going to disown you. I'm going to punish you. You're going to be subject to the rule of other nations over you instead of my sovereign rule. You're going to be put into exile. And then as we cross chapter 40 through chapter 66, Isaiah is writing as if Israel is already in exile. And he said, he's basically saying, hey, I told you so. I I told you this was going to happen, and this is the life that you're going to lead. And so Isaiah writes as if, uh, at least in the latter half, as if Israel is already in exile. He tells them that they I mean, they're nearly wiped out as a nation. They're enslaved by the very pagan, pagan kings and nations that they were submitting themselves to. And if you if you read the words 
uh, it, it's, it's almost absurd what Israel submitted themselves to. Not only did they, did they serve the other kings, but they worshiped their gods. They worshiped uh, the, the, the gods of nations that would take a piece of stone and carve it out into some figure or take a, piece, take a piece of wood off the floor and carve out some image on it and then prop it up and they pray to it and bow down to it. And God is looking at Israel and through his words, uh, through the words of Isaiah, he's saying, how could you? How could you think that turning to another king, turning to another nation, turning to idols that you pick up off the ground and start bowing down to them is going to change your plight? It's as if God is looking and saying, really? Have you ever, uh, as a parent, have you ever looked at your kids when they've done something that they shouldn't do and you told them not to do it? And he's like, really? I mean, didn't I tell you not to do that? It's that look that God has given. And the thing that happens in the history of Israel is the very thing that God told them was going to happen. Last month, we were in the book of Jonah. And the threat to the nation of Israel was the Assyrian nation. God sent Jonah, an Israelite prophet, to, uh, uh, to the Assyrians to tell them, repent and get your life right. And this very same nation God used to, uh, to attack and overthrow uh, the northern tribe of Israel and to take them into exile. And so as we think about this, Israel, the, the history of Israel, the question for us is, could God say the same thing to us when he looks in our lives? Would God tell us that what we're doing makes no sense when he looks at the totality of all the things that we do, when we're looking for security and satisfaction, perhaps when we're trying to gain comfort and meaning in all kinds of other places than in God himself? Do we really think that we know more than God does? Do we think there's security in having more money? Can we find the ultimate satisfaction perhaps in, in good sex or good sex partner? Can we find comfort and peace in a, in a bottle of alcohol? Can we really blame God when our lives blow up in our faces because our expectations have not been met? Can any of us find the meaning and purpose of life outside of the wisdom and the character of God? And this is what God is saying to Israel. And these also are appropriate words for us to ponder this morning and, and really over the course of your life. You know what? What Isaiah presents to us about Israel and their God is a love story. Unfortunately, it's a love story that's, that's gone bad. It's a love story that goes, that goes bad because Israel questioned God's ability to care for them and to give them what they wanted. Israel questioned God's wisdom and his his even desire to love them as his words projected that he would love them. And so what did they do? They utterly and willfully rejected God. And Isaiah shows that even when Israel experiences the consequences of pain and rejection, I mean, he sent them into exile, that God is fighting for their hearts for one simple reason, because he loves his people. And much as God, much as we see in God's relationship towards Israel, God today has that same relationship with us. God loves you. And he will not accept your rejection of his love. Did you hear that? He will not accept your rejection of his love. 
And so the major message that God gives to Israel through Isaiah is you're foolish, you're ignorant, you're arrogant, you're lost. And listen to this. I love you. It's crazy love. And then God says, I'm going to do something about our broken relationship. And this is what he talks about in Isaiah 42, one through three. We're going to read these verses again. I know we read them already during our Advent uh, liturgy, but let's read them out loud again. Uh, to refresh ourselves with him. We're going to read all, verse, all, all nine verses. Behold my servant, read with me, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he'll not break and a faintly burning wick he'll not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, who those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is God's word. This is what Isaiah is, is saying here. He's saying the, ser- the servant of mine. He says that in verse one, this servant of mine is going to come. And this really is chapter 42 is where the story turns. Everything before chapter 40, 41, right at 42 is a different story. God is is warning Israel, your actions, your attitude, all that you're doing is going to lead you to get in trouble. And I'm going to punish you because I, I have an exact standard. I have a perfect standard. And so get your life right. And then in chapter 42, it's as if the punishment has already happened. And God says, all right, so you did what you shouldn't have done. And I'm going to love you anyway. And I'm going to love you by sending you some help. And he sends help in the form of a servant. And so the servant is going to come. And this is where the wisdom and the provision of God is revealed for you and me in the Bible through the Old Testament prophets. Here's what God knows, that something different has to happen before this broken relationship between Israel and God is ever going to be fixed. And I would tell you the same thing is true for you and I. Something different has to happen for our broken relationship between us and God to get fixed. It's almost like two sibling brothers that 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 have these, you know, escalating antics back and forth, like me and my brother growing up. We would do all kinds of things to each other to, to bug each other, you know, just like boy, just like boys do. But the antics don't stop and they just keep getting. I mean, they just, it just keep getting more outlandish, doesn't it? Until one of you goes to college or moves out. It's like a couple that's that's having some relational issues um, that's leading to divorce. And the, the angst and the tension doesn't let up until something different happens that changes the situation or it leads in, into divorce. 
And so God is saying that something different has to happen if this relationship is ever going to be fixed. And so God loved his people and God loved Israel through uh, uh, several different means. First, he loved them through the law. God formed these people through the, the, the patriarch Abraham. He had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had uh, all his sons and they end up in Egypt and they get rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery through the, the, the through Moses. And then God brought them to Mount Sinai and he gave them the law, these Ten Commandments. And then God expands that law through Exodus 20 all the way through Leviticus 27. And I mean, these laws are I mean, it's just a lot of stuff. Do this. Don't do that. Worship me this way. Don't wear this. Wear that. This is how you're supposed to come before holy and righteous God. And and Israel received the law as they should have. But, the, you know, the the law, the law didn't have the power in it to to make them love God the way he demanded to be loved. The laws weren't bad. We shouldn't see that. The laws actually revealed God's character toward them, and it conveyed God to God's people the standards that God expected of them to be their God and for him to be their people, him to, uh, them to be his people. But the laws never won the heart of the people toward God. And so God loved them in a second way. He loved them by giving king, giving them kings. Uh, Israel looked at all the other nations around him and said, we want a king. And so God gave them a king. And what were the kings supposed to do? The kings were God's representative on earth, the image of God directly before the people. And the king was supposed to uh, rule in righteousness towards the people. But here's the deal with, with the kings. Just like people are sinful, the kings ended up being sinful. And some of the kings were were good, but most of those kings were bad. And they led the nation to be bad. And although God gave Israel kings that they might, that he might love them through the king, the kings were never able to, uh, to, to generate the love that God wanted from his people. And so God went one extra step. He gave them blessings. And God gave Israel blessing upon blessing and favor. Think of uh, the, the blessing, the promise that he gave to the patriarch Abraham. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations. And that blessing manifested in descendants. He says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, I'm going to give you kings. Kings will come from your from your loins. But the thing is, the blessings never won the hearts of the people. And of course, after Israel started rebelling against God, after Israel started being disobedient and sinning, doing the thing that God said not to do, God could have just punished them. I mean, he could have just wiped them out. But what he found was punishing Israel would fail to win the hearts of the people. More of the same doesn't fix the relationship. No king, no law, no punishment, no blessings can fix the fundamental reason why the relationship was broken. And so why was the relationship between God and Israel broken? It's the same reason why our relationship between God is broken. And that's because of our sin. Here's the essence of sin. Sin is that thing that makes you and me want to be God. And that sounds like a funny statement. 
But that really is an essence of, of what uh, one of our goals is, is to is to be the ruler of ourselves. We want to create a throne, put a crown on our head and rule our life. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And we don't want anyone else to tell us what we can't do. And that, in essence, is, is only something that God can say about himself. All the rest of us have people who are in authority over us. It's our heartfelt desire to be God. Sin is this predisposition in us that demands to be served. And so it was sin that led Israel to worship idols because they thought they could control these idols and get what they wanted. It was, it was sin in Israel that submitted themselves to kings because they thought that serving these kings would get them what they wanted. It's the sin in us that causes us to take God's blessings for granted because we just think that God is supposed to bless us. We think that we can get our best life now and live in happiness forever after more. How does I say that? Live forever. How does it go? Say it. Live forever after. There you go. Thank you. We just think life is supposed to go that way. Sin is what caused them. Sin is what, sin is what causes us to endure an astonishing amount of pain because sin blinds us as to how destructive our own selfish, selfishness is. And so the sin of God's people had corrupted Israel's hearts. And nothing before that could win their hearts back to God. And so God says through Isaiah, I'm going to fix that for them. I'm going to send someone that's going to do something so radically different that it's going to change the course of this relationship that we have here that's been broken because of their sin. And it's going to change the course of the whole world. I'm going to send you my servant, he says, my chosen one. I'm going to send you my soul's delight. God sends us Jesus. He sends us his son. He comes to us in the in the form of the person of Jesus. And Jesus is going to win the holy war for our hearts, not with kings, not with laws, not with blessings or even curses. Jesus, is, Jesus does something that's radically different. He's he does something that no one else in history would ever do, could ever do. He, he changes places with us. Jesus both suffers the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He's perfectly obedient. He's a faithful bride that we could never be. Instead of bringing more law and more politics and punishment, Jesus serves faithfully for us in our place toward God. And in that, he receives punishment that we deserve and he reconciles us to God. One of my favorite authors is John Stott. He's a British author, a theologian, and he says this about sin. He says the essence of sin is that we human beings substitute ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. In other words, we put ourselves where God only deserves to be, and God puts himself where we deserve to be. Here's my contention this morning for us. We will... We'll understand the hope of Advent, that, that hope that John Scott preached about last week. When you understand that God loves you. When you understand and accept that Jesus has substituted himself for you. And that's why the Gospel of Mark 
omits all the, the details about Jesus' birth. He omits Christmas, if you will. And John just gets to the essence of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Mark says, you're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And so what Mark is doing is he's announcing the arrival of, of the substitute. He's saying Jesus has come. He's proclaiming that, that here's Jesus, this, this perfect man. He's going to make a personal exchange. He's going to give, he's going to give you his sinlessness. He's going to give you his perfection. He's going to give you his right standing with God. And in turn, he's going to take away your sin. He's going to take away all the ways that you rebel against God. He's going to take away from you all those ways that you have been imperfect. He's going to do that on your behalf, that he might reconcile you to God. Uh, One of my favorite authors, again, is Tim Keller. And Tim, um, if, if you're here today and you lean toward apologetics, you know, defending the faith, if you're here today, more importantly, as a skeptic, you, you're just trying to figure out Christianity. I mean, figure out the nuances of it. A, a book that you should read is called The Reason for God. I stumbled across this book earlier this year. And this is what Tim Keller says in this book in regards to love. He says, real love always involves personal, personal sacrifice. In the real world, if you're going to, to love real people, who have real problems, that means you're going to share their problems, even change places with them. And so if you're, think about this concept, if you're a parent and you have kids, then you understand this, this concept of, of real love, real people requires a personal sacrifice. If you are um, a, a spouse, you know, married to someone, then you understand this concept. Real love involves a personal sacrifice. If you're if you just a friend and you love your friend, you, you understand this concept. Real love requires a sacrifice. One of the other ways we can think about this is if, if you're making a donation to a charitable organization. It's the, it's the season for charities. And we support two uh, Organization, two Christian organizations here in our church. One is Central Union Mission in D.C., a homeless shelter. The other is Bethany House, uh, the D.C. metro area. It's uh, uh, an organization that takes care of uh, people affected by um, abuse, uh, abuse and crimes and stuff like that. And when we give money to those organizations, what you're doing is you're changing places with, with people. You are you are serving either by physically going there and use and giving of yourself or you're donating your resources, your time or your money because someone else can't do that. And then when we do that, we should see that first you're being benevolent. But mostly what you're doing is you're loving them. You're loving a person that can't love themselves enough to take care of themselves or loving them through a situation that they they need to be loved through. And so real love always involves personal sacrifice. And when you're donating, you are, in a sense, sacrificing something that you have or that you own for the good of another. Tim Keller goes on to say that real love is a personal exchange. And what he means by this is all life-changing love toward people is a personal exchange. That is, you get, I mean, you're taking someone else's place. And that really is... That should be our understanding of salvation in Scripture. Here's a few verses that, 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 um, that explains that concept. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This says that Jesus changes places with us. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. Jesus changing places for us because he loves us like a friend. Ephesians 5, 25. This is a picture of marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus changing places with us, loving us enough to lay his down, his life down for us. Life changing love towards people involves a personal sacrifice, a personal exchange. This is how the Bible explains our salvation experience exactly in these terms. Last verse here, 2 Corinthians 521. This whole passage here, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21, are worth all of us memorizing this week. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus substituted himself for us, for me and you. That's what the prophet Isaiah foretold. That's what the gospel of Matthew, gospel of Mark is announcing and proclaiming. That Jesus has come to demonstrate a life changing love for you by substituting himself for you. He receives your punishment. He gives you his blessing. And Jesus, our substitute, has come and he will win the holy war for our heart, our hearts, the hearts of God's people. And the hope of Advent is that when you let Jesus win your heart, when you let him be your substitute, you receive his love. And so what we're doing today with the lighting the Advent candle is rekindling, reminding ourselves of the love that God has for us. That God has come to claim his bride. And this is the really cool thing. God doesn't come at, you know, he doesn't come wearing a wife beater t-shirt. He doesn't come to like an angry, mad husband to, to abuse his wife. Uh, verses two and three says, I mean, he comes gently. Look at the verses two and three real quick. He will not cry aloud or lip up his voice or make it heard in the streets. It says a bruised reed he'll not break and a faintly burning wick he'll not quench. He'll faithfully bring forth justice. God comes to us as we can receive him. His love for you means that if you're a bruised reed, that means if you're if you're in a tender spot, if if like you've got bruises in your body and you need to be handled gently, if you're damaged by sin, that means God has come and you you have nothing to fear. Perhaps you're here today and you, you don't even like the thought of God because it just generates all kinds of fear in you. And you feel guilty when you think about God because you think he's going to punish you for all the things that you've done. This verse says that we don't have to fear God. Because the substitute has come and he didn't come to break you. He came to mend you. He came to love you by receiving your punishment. And he loved you by taking your place on the cross. And, and all the wrath that you should be getting because of your sin, God has taken upon himself through Jesus on the cross. And then he goes on in this verse to say that if you're a faintly burning wick, that means like, I mean, you, you got you used to be a, a flame. I mean, you used to be bright and shining. And this, this is uh, suggesting at one time you had a great love for God. But at, but life situation, something happened, you know, that that just burned it out. And you're you're a faintly, faintly lit piece of wood in a fire. 
that's barely kindled anymore. He's saying, if, if you're like that, then the substitute hasn't come to quench you. He's actually come to, to reflame you, to rekindle you. He came to die for you. He came to take your place so that all the bad things that ever happened to you would, be, would happen to him. He came to take those on himself so that you can come to an understanding that God loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. And so we lit the second Advent candle today, the candle of love, to remind ourselves that we have been given the most powerful, expansive, pure love, purest love in all the universe. We celebrate with Isaiah and we, we, we proclaim with Mark the very coming of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love stories, and this is an interesting story. It's a story that's almost too good to be true. Honestly, sometimes we can't even believe it, that in all the ways that we mess up, that we rebel, that we don't do the things that God requires of us, that he loves us. He loves us despite ourselves, despite our rebellion, despite us stiff arming him, turning our backs on him and running the, uh, the opposite way. And so today, would you, would you remind us of this story that happened in the life of the nation of Israel and that through it, would you rekindle our hearts like a stick that, we, that used to be a flame where it's almost the, the, the fire's almost smoldered out, would you relight and ignite our hearts toward you? Lord, you haven't given us a bunch of rules to follow and left us alone. You love us like a bride. And as we reflect your love through the death of, of Jesus and his resurrection from, from the grave, would you help us to know how much you love us? For that person here today that doesn't feel loved, would you love them? Would you love them? Would you show them that you love them? Greater love has no one than he laid down his life. You love us through the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.